In today's episode, we're going behind the scenes to understand the business model driving ESPN's wide world of sports. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. All right, welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders and customer and employee experience to tease out the core principles that drive them and apply those insights to the world of sports and entertainment. One of the first episodes of the show that we did was with one of our senior partners at Engagement, Rick Jones. But I've held off on doing an episode with our other senior partner, Mike Malay. Yes, Mike is my dad. And yes, it's a little weird that I always call him Mike. But we work together, so what are you going to do? I'm not going to call him dad in the middle of a boardroom. We actually tried to record an episode together before we officially launched the podcast last year. And I just didn't like it. It felt inauthentic because I was asking questions I already knew the answers to. And that's what happens when you try to interview your dad, trying to distill his core business beliefs. I work with the guy every day. I know what those are. But with major pro sports starting to slowly come back, all eyes are suddenly on ESPN Wide World of Sports. And that's a topic Mike can talk about for days, and I can ask some real questions. MLS kicked off its first game on Wednesday, and NBA players are now in the bubble on Disney property. As ESPN Wide World of Sports is the epicenter of Major League Pro Sports in America right now, I know there are a lot of questions from our listeners and from the general public that we sought to answer here on this episode. Mike was the second executive hired at Wide World of Sports, and he was there for almost 20 years, the longest tenure of any executive in the complex's history. If you did not know, the MLS and NBA bubble is spread out across Walt Disney World Resort property. For some context, the property itself is over 40 square miles, which is about the size of San Francisco, or twice the size of the entire Manhattan Island. On that property, you've got four theme parks, two water parks, almost 30 owned and operated resorts, multiple golf courses, one of the largest and most profitable outdoor shopping and entertainment districts in the world in Disney Springs, and tons more third-party operated businesses. Amidst all of that is one of the world's largest sports complexes, ESPN Wide World of Sports. It's a 250-plus acre sports complex right smack dab in the middle of Walt Disney World property, including a 7,500-seat baseball stadium, a 5,000-seat multi-purpose arena, a smaller 70,000-square-foot arena, 12 full-size soccer fields, four multi-purpose fields, four professional baseball fields, six softball fields, a tennis complex, a track and field complex, a cross-country course, and more. It's huge in size, and it's huge in revenue. From a financial perspective, it was about a $100 million net revenue business driver for Mickey. Mike will explain how all of that came to be. During his 20 years as an exec at the Walt Disney Company, Mike oversaw almost every aspect of ESPN Wide World of Sports, from business development to capital planning, legal, event operations, marketing, and more. So suffice it to say, his skill set with our clients has been invaluable as we help organizations enhance their customer journeys, improve their culture, and optimize their operations. 
For the purpose of this podcast, Mike's going to take us behind the scenes as to how ESPN Wide World of Sports first came to be and how it got to where it is today, hosting the NBA and MLS games. We cover everything from the larger impact the sports complex has had on the sports industry as a whole and sports tourism. We talk about how they made business decisions and how the complex makes money. We talk about Mike's evolution as a leader, coming from a small nonprofit sports organization to being an executive at Disney. We talk about failures and lessons from other leaders. No matter if you work for a pro sports team or a local sports commission, a college athletics department or a youth sports organization, you're going to find some value in what Mike's got to say. Originally, this was a long recording. So we're splitting it into two parts. The first episode, which you're listening to now, is primarily focused on the business model and the inner workings of Wide World of Sports. Part two is more focused on Mike's learnings and reflections on his own leadership journey while at Disney. Without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with my dad, Mike Millay. Mike, dad, welcome to the show. Great to be on the show, David's son. Uh, this is going to be an interesting one. I know you've been on a couple episodes as kind of like a, a guest here and there, but never front and center. Uh, but with all eyes on ESPN Wide World Sports this month with the MLS just kicked off this week uh, and NBA kicking off a little bit later here, uh, but now all the players are starting to come into the bubble, uh, really wanted to peel back the layers of the onion and give everybody an idea of the business model behind what ESPN wide world of sports is. And so who better to do that than you? Well, I'm, I'm excited. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of where ESPN wide world of sports uh, is and being, you know, center stage, which is great for great for the athletes. It's great for the Disney brand. And it's certainly great for ESPN wide world of sports and all the cast members there that do such a great job every day. Well, it was, it was funny even too, like earlier this week on LinkedIn, uh, Cesar Lopez, who's general counsel at uh, Orlando City Soccer, uh, he messaged something about the, the team kicking off. And I, I messaged him, it was pretty surreal that they were playing on that same field that he and I had played on so many times growing up. Um, and, and so I, I think it's going to be really interesting, but I, let's let's dig in here. Um, so. So first things first, I mean, what are people seeing on TV? Obviously, on, on Wednesday night when Orlando City kicked off against Miami, they were playing on one field. When the NBA plays, I imagine they're going to play inside what used to be the, the Milk House, HP Pavilion. Uh, we'll see where they play. Give us a context of scope of the actual ESPN wide world of, of uh, sports complex. Well, it's, it's certainly matured over the years. I, I actually watched that game. Uh, the other night, um, and and was excited to see it. it. You know, every time you see ESPN Wide World Sports, at least every time I see ESPN Wide World Sports on TV, I, I always look for different things. You know, um, you know, the one thing that really strikes you is the maturity of of the of the of the landscape. Um, it was interesting when we first built Wide World of Sports. I, I couldn't I couldn't get my arms around how much money we were spending on trees and landscaping and bushes. I'm like, what a waste of money. You know, we need more money in, in the facilities and, and all that. And then after a couple of years, you saw how beautiful the place was. And that's why WDI and the Imagineers do such a great job in storytelling. It really, it really makes the place look 
so much different than any any other facility in the in the world, quite honestly. Uh, but back back to your question, you know, when I look at those fields, one they were in pristine shape, which is clear because no one's been playing on them for for, for months. So they're going to be as green as as they ever have been. Um, and, but I thought the presentation was really done very well. So between MLS and, and Disney, it, I thought it, it came across looking very, very clean. Odd, odd to watch a game where there's no fans, but, um, the excitement was still certainly was certainly evident, uh, in the goals and the plays that were made on the field. So just to put it into context, while everyone else was talking about the big giant Adidas digital logo, you were looking at the trees. Well, you know, again, I look at how it's how the whole thing is framed within the bigger story of wide world of sports. I mean, wide world of sports, you know, from a standpoint of people might look at it and say, oh, there's there's one field or people would have come to the Braves games, the Braves spring training, who was there for 20 years. And they would never go past the baseball stadium, which was very at the very front of the complex. And they didn't realize that there was another 180 acres of sports facilities behind it. Um and so you, as a child growing up, you got a chance to explore every nook and cranny on, on the 220 acres, the initial 220 acres. It's now, I think they're up to 200. And when I left five years ago, it was about 250 acres. Uh, they've added a few more now. So it's probably 265 somewhere in there when you, when you, when you count it all in. That's, that's a lot of land. It's bigger than the Magic Kingdom. So, so what is on that land? Well, you know, when we, you know the the leadership at Disney. When I, I was brought in after there was a, a a a germ of an idea and a framework for the types of facilities and events that we should be grow that we should go after. Um, so that that initial framework never really changed. You had the you had the tennis courts. You had a track and field. You had at the time four soccer fields. You had one one field house, one baseball stadium. Um, and that was kind of it. Oh, and then we had, we had our youth baseball fields, uh, as well. Um, so, but it's, it's changed now. There's now three indoor facilities. There is, I think we're up there up to 16 soccer fields. Now we, so we how how big are those indoor facilities even? Aren't they just tons of courts inside? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the initial, the, the milk house, um, was really six, six, uh, NBA size basketball courts inside of it. Uh, and then the Jostens. (laughs) Then the and there's Center. three of those kind of thing. And there's three of those. Yeah. And the, the arena, which was built uh, right after I left, um, that, that is much more of a spectator driven uh, facility. Again, the, the, the business model behind ESPN wide world of sports was to go after a target audience that was not coming to the Walt Disney World Resort on a normal basis. I mean, the, the, the thought behind that is uh, in the early when you're a young child, you whether you're a boy or a girl, you 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 come to Walt Disney World to experience the magic of of the Walt Disney World Resort. Um, but at a, at a certain age, let's call it 12, 13, and maybe younger now, where kids are not as enamored by the characters, if you will, and they don't come back to to Walt Disney World till they're you know a young a young person. Let's say they're in their twenties. Maybe they come back around you know just after post college. Maybe they're starting a young family of their own, so that's a big, big gap that we are not. We were not in the in the crosshairs of a person of that age. Actually, the competitors up the road, Universal Studios, all the Iron Rides that they that they kind of 
put their put their thumbprint on uh, was really attracting those teenagers. So Wide World of Sports was a pure target play to go after people in their teens. And we use sports to drive that incremental audience to the Walt Disney World Resort. So that, that was really the business model behind it. And, and what we what we realized was that we became the most incremental sales channel for the Walt Disney World Resort because all the all the research proved that people would not those those people would not have come to Walt Disney World if it was not for that sporting event. So that's a for anybody any of the marketers that are going to be listening here, finding incremental uh, audiences at a cost effective uh, uh, entry point is was really really important, and that's why the business model works so well. So that's what I was just about to say. It seems like you guys looked at it and you said, hey, let's really be customer centric here, as we always talk about Disney is who are the customers that are missing and aren't spending as much money from us? And how can we create a service and a product that might attract that customer to now come spend money with Walt Disney World parks and resorts? And that product happened to be a gigantic, the world's largest at the time, right? Sports complex. It still is. And yep. it still is. And, yep. uh, and we can provide different tournaments and whatnot for them to come and ultimately drive heads and beds, which is something I know that you guys talked a lot about. Can you explain yeah. the concept kind of between heads and beds? And I think that kind of leads us into my next thing is like, what do you think the impact has been of wide world of sports on the larger sports industry, especially sports tourism? Well, again, the Walt Disney World Resort. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. It, it's it's anchor business is get people to come down, visit our parks, and stay in our hotels. Second, the second group is visit our parks, stay in a neighbor's hotel, right? And so, anything that you can do to get people to get to your parks and spend the money to get into the parks, spend it on merchandise, spend it on food and beverage, that's really driver. So, so the sales channels, every sales channel, whether it was the convention business, which was says. How do I get convention delegates to come to Walt Disney World and go to our parks and spend food and beverage at our parks? Um, so we were just another sales channel. There's another sales channel that was kind of u- unique, was, which was the youth markets, bands, cheerleaders, um, of uh, you know, debate teams, uh, just field trips. All those that that target audience was teenager driven. They were highly incremental as well. Uh, but the bottom line is you got to get them into the parks to spend the money. Um, the challenging piece there was the balance between I'm coming down to win a national championship, yet my 12-year-olds want to go to the park. And, and as a coach, it's driving you nuts because you want them to be maniacally focused on winning a game. And as a parent, you're like, but they're 12 years old. You know, let's give them a break. Uh, so there was always that. that I remember when in the early years, there was a tournament that we had. And there was there was a, a nine-year-old baseball tournament uh, in, 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 in these this parent, their team actually won it, and he, they never took him to the parks. They brought him down. They stayed in the hotels. They played their games, and they won. They won the championship. And then we get a call, and they said, "Hey, we, we'd like to be in the parade because the, on, on Main Street because we won it." We're like, "What are you talking about? You know, this is how do you not, how do you how do you deprive a nine year old uh, of, of going to the parks?" Um, but you know, parents today are, are a little more zealot about uh, their kids winning and getting a scholarship, even though. 98% of them are never going to go to college and get a college scholarship. But that's another story. Well, it's, it's interesting too. I, I, I kind of want to get into this before we get into some more of the deeper lessons, but you know, this past fall, our friends at league apps up in New York, put on a, a, a great youth sports conference. One, really one of the first ones that I, I've been to that was kind of cross 
functional, if you, if that makes sense. Um, but we talked with a lot of people there that have that are working and running their own versions of sports complex in different parts of the U.S. Um, how, how do you feel like ESPN Wide World of Sports has impacted sports tourism uh, as a whole for positive or negative? Well, I, without question, um, it, ESPN Wide World of Sports at the time, Disney's Wide World of Sports, we rebranded years later. Um, but without question, it it really validated the entire sports tourism space. So sports tourism in, in its in its uh, from its broadest sense is really what is the economic impact that a sports event has in a marketplace, right? Everyone quickly goes to Super Bowls and Final Fours and, and other things like that. But I would tell you that the the actual economic impact on youth events in most cases is much larger than it is for a lot of these premium events. Take the, take those exceptions that I just mentioned, uh, because those are outliers, but for a a lot of NCAA championship events, these youth events drive significant more economic impact to a community. And that's why, that's why these cities all across the country have doubled down. When 9-11 happened, 9-11, no one traveled, no business travelers weren't anywhere. People weren't going on vacations. They were just, they, they weren't, they didn't feel safe, but what went up was sports tourism. So what that said is, listen, I may not go on a vacation, but I'm not going to miss Billy or Susie's national championship game. We're going. And so our numbers had double digit growth right after 9-11. And that woke, that woke up every municipality in America that had destination management organizations focused on traditional business. And they said, the sports seems to be pretty insulated by it all. Now, honestly, pandemic has had a much bigger impact than anything. Uh, that's that we're no in. Uh, but yeah, it, it listen, wide world of sports, we set the standard. Um, we validated that if Disney was going to get into it and make money off it, then why wouldn't everybody else? Um, and that's what municipalities have. So they sports commissions, the volume of sports commissions grew, the number of facilities built in, mus- in municipalities have grown, and it spawned an entire, entire youth sports industry, um, uh, which again has some of its some negative effects that we can talk about if you want, but you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of great things that have happened. Beautiful. Uh, at its heyday, I mean, how many athletes are coming through there a year just for, so people can get an idea of the, the scope of, of what you guys did at ESPN Wide World Sports. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I look at most division one, uh, power five schools and they're somewhere in the 750 to 900 athletes, you know, maybe, maybe they, maybe they hit a thousand athletes. I think Stanford that had 36 sports was up to like 850 athletes, but yeah, typically yeah. more around 500. Yeah. And, and, and we would deal with about 375,000 unique athletes, um, over per the year? course of the year, per year, per year. Um, and so we would do, we, we would do about 160 events a year, but the entire brave spring training for us was one event. Um, so, so people look at it differently, you know, but the way we calculated is that spring training was one event. Uh, the, we, we, for, for five, five years, we had a double a baseball team there. That was one event. So that was, you know, we had, you know, a hundred, hundred plus games that we did all the, all, you counted all as one of 160 events. Yeah. Because it's just that, uh, you know, first off, we're, uh, we're a fortune 100 company and, it is about shareholder value. So um, you you end up looking at everything from a business perspective through a financial lens. Um, my my finance partners were 
were, were phenomenal partners and they, uh, they kept me honest, you know, salespeople always want to try to find a shortcut. Our finance people <laughs> would never let you do it. You know, they held, they held your feet to the fire. And after a while you go, yeah, that really was a stupid idea. Thanks for pointing it out to me though. Beautiful. I, we're going to get into that a little bit here. Um, but let, let's start. We're talking about events. Uh, what was the first event you guys did and talk to us about that launch? Yeah. So we launched in, in March of 97. I was brought in in 94 to help uh, kind of frame up, and, you know, I mean, I figure out what's, what, what should get built and what events we should we should host. And um, so we, we opened with you know, one, one of the, one of there was, there were two really anchor, uh, businesses that, that validated, uh, that, that, that got the approval on the West coast. And that was, we, we locked down a spring training partner with a 20 year lease with the Atlanta Braves. So that kind of really, that was really kind of a, a big win. And then we, we got the AAU to relocate out of Indianapolis to, to Walt Disney world, uh, in exchange, they would deliver, uh, in, the original contract was 60, 60 events a year. Um, so that, that right there's, it, it's kind of like if you're going to build a mall, you better have a good, a couple anchor tenants to drive the traffic. And that's what that, those, those were. But we opened the, opened it in March of 97 with the, the, the Braves playing their last game of that, of that uh, spring training against, um, against the Cincinnati Reds, which Deion Sanders had on there. And that was, that was in itself was an interesting, um, interesting event. If you're, if you're, for those people who who have been around Walt Disney World or any of the Disney parks, when you open up a new park, it is all hands on deck. You've got everybody from everywhere um, involved in your business to try to make sure it gets launched in the in, in the best way possible. The one thing Disney does is we tend to not, uh, you know, take shortcuts. So we we throw a lot of smart people at a lot of things, but uh, the. A typical baseball game, you know, think about game day staffing. I, I swear we had more Walt Disney World staff than we had fans. Uh, we had pe- <laughs> we had people everywhere just bumping into each other. They didn't really have a role to play on game day. Their their job was really planning, but who doesn't want to be there for opening opening pitch? But they were just there were there were executives everywhere, um, and it was but it was fun. You know, th- those were the early days. Uh, good, good friend uh, who's up at Giant Stadium, Bill Squires. Uh, you know, Bill, Bill was the, 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 uh, the, uh, GM of the complex at the time. And, and, uh, my, my former boss, Reggie Williams, who was, uh, you know, former Cincinnati Bengal, uh, you know, just, uh, never missed a game. And I think it was 13 years, just a, just a animal of a, of a, of a, of a linebacker. He's never, never saw anybody more tenacious, both on the field or, or in the boardroom. I'm I'm sure you saw a lot of great leaders there, and and I do want to get into that. But first, I, something that you mentioned, you know, when we opened a new park at Disney or a new hotel, we threw a lot of a lot of people came and and helped out with that, uh, and we really took it seriously. So, talk to us about how you guys balanced the brand of Mickey and all that comes with it, and the characters and the show versus the authenticity of sport. Yeah, that that's a that's a great question because I think the the natural if you're a if you're a Disney file or if you're a, or if you're a you know if you're a Disney leader you 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 get wrapped up in the brand and 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 the characters and and what that means. But if you really peel the onion back, the character the the characters are just um you know the, the, they're part they're part of the overall show. The reality is 
what Disney is known for are, are its four key basics of, of how we train people and, and lead people to, to deliver great customer service. And, and, you know, so that didn't change at Wide World of Sports. Now, what was the challenge was where we had a lot of people from within the company wanting to put Mickey everywhere. And to Reggie's credit, as, as a former NFL player, it was really all about the athlete experience, not, not, not really connecting with the Disney brand, except the Disney brand of great customer service and, and excellent facilities. So if you, if, if our baseball fields were good enough for, for, for Tom Glavin, you know, uh, or, 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 or Chipper Jones, Chip, or Chipper Jones or John Smoltz, then certainly it's going to be good enough for your 12 year old. Um, and that was really those early events that we did were really uh, early on were high profile because, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times people say, well, you know, oh, that, that's going to be a Mickey Mouse event, which is really kind of a cut. So we had to overcome that, that, that brand of it's a Mickey Mouse event to no, 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 no. We put on the best events that's on par with the Super Bowl or, or a Final Four our attention to detail. And that's really where, where we leveraged the Disney quality and embedded that into the sports business. And for a lot of us that came from the sports background first, that was kind of an adjustment for us. We had to kind of not get on the bus, but really kind of understand really what great customer service meant and what great fields met and what great, you know, it's, again, not people, not the people. In the sports the, level, the levels of quality and standard expectations were far, far higher from safety yeah, no perspective, question. from a show perspective, from a kindness and courtesy perspective, efficiency, yeah. all those things. Yeah. And you had to balance that with, you know, a, a, a kid going down the field and a, and a coach screaming at him to get up, you know, like, Where's, where's, where's the kindness in that? And again, so we didn't, we didn't, I mean, let's talk about that for a second too, right? Like not to, not to interrupt you, but I mean, that, that I know is one of the big things too, is like, how did you, how did you balance the happiest place on earth with most of the people coming to the complex? We're going to walk out losers. Well, again, credit to the early management team at at ESPN Wide World Sports led by Reggie. Uh, you, You know, we really said, this is where champions are made, but the reality is 98% of the people here are going to walk away losers, right? And we had to, we had to sell that inside the company. Um, it, it, it just, it's, they really left this alone after a while, right? It, it's, it's, they, they just said, okay, they're on this island over there. That, that it, The fan experience, the guest experience is a little different, um, but, you know, we wanted to stay true to what sports really was. It was about, you know, competing to be the best you can be. And we, we felt that if we gave them the best fields, the best courts possible, then we would let them perform at their best. Um, and I think anybody that's ever, any youth player, any anybody that's listening to here that ever brought a child down there to play or played themselves at, at these facilities, they would say, that is as nice a facility as I ever played with. So the other thing we thought about is that the majority of people are never going to play in the final four of the Super Bowl. So this might be the pinnacle of their athletic career is hmm. playing at ESPN Wide World Sports. So let's deliver like it is their Super Bowl, their Final Four, not about us. So how did I mean on, on that note, right? I, I look at MLS games being played there. Uh, 
NBA games being played there. And I, I would imagine many of the kids that have played there or aspire to play there probably looking at it the same way I was of like, man, that's the same field the MLS guys are playing on. Um, yeah. Speculate as to some of the value or some of the behind the scenes conversation that happened uh, to bringing MLS and NBA to wide world of sports, because to your point, it's not the t- typical model of it's not driving heads and beds. Um, but right. how do you think, I mean, talk to us about what you think some of those conversations might've been. Well, I, I think it was, you know, again, I, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, but I, I can imagine kind of what was going on there. The reality is I think the doubt um, from an, from a Disney leadership standpoint, uh, they know that they, that, that Walt Disney World would not be opened up at this time, right? So I think some early conversations with says, shoot, I'm not sure if we're going to be open. So if we can create um, a win-win here where there's going to be some exchange of money uh, between the leagues and the Walt Disney World Resort, because they are staying in the hotel, so they are going to pay for that. They are going to pay for the food. Um, at the same time, get the eyes of the world um not necessarily on ESPN Wide World Sports, although although the eyes clearly are on ESPN Wide World Sports, but more of the Walt Disney World Resort. So I would venture to say that over time you'll see more and more branded commercials in there. That so that I'm sure there was an exchange of of airtime and and playtime in terms of telling the story behind where where Walt Disney World is heading. Um, so I think it was I don't know saying it was a simple business decision, but if you look at what's going on across the country now, sports, youth sports is just now barely opening up and not in every market. So youth travel is not even happening right now. So I think it was probably a pretty smart decision um, that not, not that they could have forecasted that the rest of the country wouldn't be open, but it was probably a pretty safe bet. Got it. Well, let's go back to something you, you touched on and we said we wanted to come back to, which is really you know, talking about this balance between Disney culture and typical sports culture. Um, we touched on it a little bit, but how did y'all balance that from an employee experience? Uh, we talked about it from a fan perspective and you got to, Hey, let's raise the external qualities, but you came in as a leader in sports and now into this heightened world of expectations. And even I think as we work with different, uh, athletic departments or pro sports teams, there were certain things that we would do at Disney as operators that were just like common sense for us. And when I worked at Disney Institute, things that were very common sense that you go into other organizations and it's like rocket science. How did you guys adjust and how did you balance that employee culture, I guess, difference between Disney brand and sports culture? You know, we had a real good balance of, people who came from the sports background who you, you had to bring in a soccer guy who had soccer relationships that that sock those soccer relationships didn't exist with somebody who was working at the Grand Floridian right so <laughs> so we had to bring in the outside and that was really my team so I went out and got people who really were were best in class in in their areas at the same time we balanced it with a lot of people within Walt Disney World who were operators or marketers or food and beverage people who brought brought with them the DNA of traditional Walt Disney World. So that was really where the blend was. I thought we did a great job of, of again, collaborating and, and, and bringing, you know, the, the, the winning mentality of sports and the competitiveness of sports with the 
the expectations of delivering great customer service that Disney was known for. And so having guys like John Bizzigano, Jeff Sturgeon, guys like that who had worked at the company, Fred Schiller, who had worked at the company for years um, and bring them in uh, and, and really kind of teach us uh, the, the, the Disney way because uh, we weren't there. What was the hardest thing for you coming in from a sports background into the Disney culture as a leader of people, a leader of a lot of people? What, what was the hardest adjustment for you? I think the hardest adjustment was was educating peers within the company that we had to do it slightly different than what you were used to. And so it was getting people accustomed that we didn't we weren't we weren't we weren't. Uh, compromising on safety, courtesy, show, or efficiency, um, but we had to do it differently than you do it over at, at, you know, at the Grand Floridian or over at the Magic Kingdom. It's just, it's a different, it's a different guest. Um, you know, it's much more about participation on the field than strolling and looking at, you know, or getting on a ride or going to a show in our parks. Much more, again, much more participatory. Uh, I mean, it, Listen, the athletes are our show. You know, that's that's that is what the show is. It's the athletes that come in. So we're bringing in all these characters, if you will, for other people to watch. So it was it was fun. It was fun. Hey, guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.